everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Leviticus. And I know that these chapters we're coming up to, chapters 12 through 15, are usually the ones that are considered the most dreadful and the least pleasant, and I understand that, but they are also right in the center of the book of Leviticus, which in turn is at the center of the Torah. So these are very, very important topics that God is addressing in these four chapters. Now, this year, in 2022, Tazria and Metzora are read on separate weeks, but most of the time they are read and studied together as a double portion. And since we had a Torah service at Beth Dekun last week, I decided to go ahead and double up as it's normally done, and we're going to cover both of these. Um, they're very short portions, only two chapters each, so um, uh, it's almost impossible to study them separately. Tazria and Metzora are all about leprosy, and that's the word our English translations use, but I'll be using the term zarat, which is the Hebrew term, because modern-day leprosy is not what is in view here in the, these Torah portions. Um, modern leprosy is, uh, I think it's called Hansen's disease, is a, a medical condition that is understood and is treated and um, is well known today. But zarat is an utterly spiritual disease. It's completely different. So um, let's just jump right in. I'm going to, first of all, give you some preliminary, some ways to think about this. Because the rabbis have always seen zarat as a gift from God. A gift, even though it's something that's embarrassing, unpleasant, it separates you from the community, it possibly was painful, we don't know, but the rabbis see it as a gift. And why do they do that? Well, imagine, just imagine, a community where God dwells tangibly in their midst, as the community in the wilderness, where the tabernacle was right there. And there was the pillar of fire at night and the, the pillar of, of cloud by day. And the manna appeared in the morning every day. And, uh, and all the manifestations that God made while they were in the wilderness. So God was tangibly right there. And he set a very high bar for their holiness and for their observance of his commandments. And in such a community, sin just isn't tolerated. And in such a community where there's so much light, that means things that are normally hidden become revealed. The more light, the more we can see. You know, today we live in the shadow lands, and um, so hiding one's sin is not that difficult to do if you're trying to hide it from others. But we don't hide it from God. And in a holy community, one where God tangibly dwells in our midst, hiding sin is a real challenge, and you're just not going to get away with it. And also imagine where levels of holiness and purity are established, where the spiritual light is great, where sinful things are so clearly revealed that they are manifested on a person's skin. So it means that if there is sin in your life, if you have guilt in your life that you do not recognize and are not acknowledging, or worse, you're just refusing to acknowledge, suddenly you wake up one morning and you've got something wrong on your skin, on your face, on your scalp. And it becomes pretty obvious you've got a problem in your soul. Now, again, this is not a medical condition. This is something utterly spiritual. So these principles about Zarat you need to keep in mind so that you never confuse it with a purely physical disease. When Zarat would appear, it was only the visible skin, the arms, hands, the face, the head, that was examined. The priest would not come and say, well, you need to take off your shirt so I can take a better look at your body. No, nope, it's just the exposed parts. No, they, they say your hands and your, your face are, are public property. They're not to be covered, as is done in, in much of Islam today. 
that's public property, and it's in this part of your body that's to be public, is where the sin would show, the zerat would show. Zerat, contrary to what most people think, was not contagious. It was not contagious. Almost all of the rabbis agree on this, and you won't find one word in the scriptures about leprosy, zerat, being contagious. With that said, if you touch someone who has zerat, you do not contract the disease, but you become ritually impure for a period of time, which means you can't go into the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, you might have to go outside the camp for a day and then wash your clothes and you know go through the rituals before you're ritually pure again. But this is the same as if you touch a dead body, you know, a, a family member dies, you have to touch the body to prepare it for burial. You, be, you become ritually impure. It doesn't have anything to do with sin or disease. It's a ritual impurity. So you don't catch zarat from touching someone who has it, but you are made ritually impure by touching them. There was no medical treatment prescribed. Uh, there's no way to be healed from this. It had to run its course. God decides when this thing goes away. Not only could it affect the skin, but it could flick clothing, furniture, and even the walls of your house. And I give you the passages here in our Torah portion that describe this. The impurity depends upon the declaration of the Kohen, not the condition of the skin. Look, for example, at chapter 13 and verse 8. It says there, the Kohen shall look and behold the mespachet, which is one of the types of, of zarat, has spread on the skin. The Kohen shall declare him contaminated. Now, what's really interesting about this, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. It doesn't say the Kohen declares him contaminated. The word declare is not there. And the Hebrew, it's just two words. Vatimo ha-Kohen. In other words, basically, the Kohen contaminates him. And the person is not contaminated until the Kohen, the priest, says, you're contaminated. Those words coming from the priest's mouth are what make the person unclean. And when the Zaras completely goes away, you're still unclean. You're still impure until the Kohen says, you're clean. At the speech of the Kohen, that is when the person becomes clean. Now, who's our high priest? That's Yeshua. In other words, it's not your opinions or the opinions of others that will define whether you are in sin or not. It's the word of the master. And we have to go by his word. A person completely covered, are you ready for this? A person completely covered with leprosy was considered pure. Look at verses 12 and 13. And this is kind of mind-boggling. If the zarat will erupt on the skin and the zarat will cover the entire skin of the affliction from his head to his feet, wherever the eyes of the Kohen can see, the Kohen shall look and behold, the affliction has covered his entire flesh then he shall declare the affliction to be pure. Having turned completely white, it is pure. What you find as you read through these chapters, it's not being completely covered with zarat or not having any zarat that makes you impure. It's the mixture of the two. When there's a mixture of healthy flesh and afflicted flesh, then you're impure. This kind of aligns with what Messiah says over in Revelation chapter 3 in the letter to the church at Laodicea. He says that the people are lukewarm. He says, I would rather you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. It's this mixture of, of uh, observance and an appearance of following God mixed with sin and rebellion against God. It's that mixture that God says, you have to go outside the camp. <coughs> Excuse me. And how this works out practically is this. A person who is truly righteous, a God-fearing person who's really living life the best they know how, 
and loves God, fears God, loves their neighbor, they're not a danger to anyone. Likewise, a person who hates God, hates people, lives a completely unrighteous life, has no concerns whatsoever about right and wrong. They may be a danger physically to people, but spiritually they're not. Because anyone who looks at that person's life says, well, I don't want to be like that. In other words, there's no contamination from that person. It's the person who, uh, who portrays righteousness, but there's unrighteousness in their lives. Those are the ones who pose spiritual danger to us because they can look like they're wearing uh, sheep's clothing, but inside they're a wolf. They can look like an angel of light, but inside they're satanic. And uh, we need to be careful of people with this mixture because they can easily lead us astray. And probably every cult leader who's ever lived has had this mixture, and they've been extremely dangerous. So it's the mixture that poses danger. And the Cohen says, you're unclean, you must be removed from the camp. And then after recovery, and again, there's no, there's no uh, formula for healing up from Zarat, but when, if and when you do, <clears throat> a sin offering is required. Why would that be? It's because the cause of your zarat is personal sin. And in this holy community, you can't get away with hidden sin. Whatever is hidden inside is going to be revealed. Now, a phrase we find often right up front as we get into this portion, chapter 13, it is the phrase, or basar. Sometimes it's or basaro, the skin of his flesh, or or habasar, the, 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 the skin of the flesh, but the skin of the flesh, skin of flesh. It's such an odd term. If I talk about my skin, I don't say, well, the skin of my flesh. I think of my skin as my flesh. But the Torah makes a distinction. Your flesh is your body, but it's covered with this coating of skin. And the skin of your flesh will often reveal the health of the body. And um, I was just hearing, listening to uh, someone talk about how the body regenerates itself. Your bones replace themselves, the cells replace themselves over a period of about 10 years. But your skin replaces itself about every two to three weeks. It's constantly shedding dead cells and replacing them. So the skin of your flesh is in a constant state of flux. It's always changing. It's dying, falling away, and being replaced with new skin cells. But if you look at chapter 13, we'll start with verse 1. Adonai spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, If a person will have on the skin of his flesh, <clears throat> and then it points out the, uh, the three major kinds of zarat, uh, a sate or a sepachat or a beherit, and it will become zarat affliction on the skin of his flesh. He shall be brought to Aaron the Kohen, to one of his sons, the Kohanim. The Kohen shall look at the affliction on the skin of his flesh. If hair and the affliction is changed to white, the affliction's appearance is deeper than the skin of the flesh. And on and on and on. What is God trying to teach us through this? Well, the word for skin, you can see it right here, or... Basar is flesh, but the word or is the word for skin. So over here, under or, we can write the word skin. It's also the same word used for leather. And for the animal hides, when the sacrifice is brought, they would skin it and the hide, the or, would belong to the priest who officiated. But there's another Hebrew word, or, spelled almost the same way. Skin is spelled ayin vav resh. But this other word is spelled Aleph Vav Resh. The first letter of each word is silent. There are two silent letters in Hebrew, Ayin and Aleph. So this other word is also pronounced Or, exactly the same way. It's a homophone. But this word on the right is the word for light. When God let the light shine the creation, says Vayomer Elohim, Yihior, Vayior, 
let there be ore, and there was ore, there was light. Now, why do you think God made these two words, the word for skin and the word for light, be the same word when you hear them? It's because Adam and Eve, and we can gather this from reading between the lines of Scripture, and also it's part of the rabbinic tradition, that when they were created, their bodies glowed with an aura. That's where we get the word aura from the word or. They glowed with an aura. They did not feel naked. But the moment they sinned, the lights went out. Instead of seeing the ore, they just saw the or. And this is why it says in Romans chapter 8 that when Messiah came, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Though he was sinless, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The lights were off. He didn't glow. Now on the Mount of Transfiguration, for a moment there, he appeared in the likeness of unsinful flesh. He appeared and he just glowed. And this is probably the way Adam and Eve looked originally. But uh, after that experience, turn the lights off. Because that'd be kind of distracting if you're trying to be incognito and you're, you're glowing all the time. But it's believed that in the world to come, we once again will be clothed in light. And um, the righteousness and the Shekinah that's within us will appear on the outside as well. So we can think of Zarat as being a light disease. Your light is diseased. The light that should be going forth from your life is somehow damaged. It's somehow broken, and it's not working the way it should. So can you imagine, can you just imagine if your flesh always reflected the state of your soul? Um, I think I have a quote here. Yes, Rabbi Zalman Sorotskin said, Zarat is not a physical illness requiring the attention of an ordinary doctor. Rather, it is a disease of the soul. We are to be people of light. We are to be uh, lights in the world. We are to bear light. And that light is not a physical light you see with your eyes. It's the righteousness and the good works we do. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 22, Yeshua says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Well, can you imagine if the skin of your flesh, the skin of your body also radiated that light. Wouldn't that be amazing? The first time we, we find the word zarat in the scripture is back in Exodus chapter 4. If you recall, Moses is at the burning bush and, um, and he's giving excuses about why God may have picked the wrong man to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And... Uh, and then he, he says to God, says, well, what if they don't believe me? What if I go tell them you've sent me and I'm supposed to lead them out and tell Pharaoh to let your people go? What if they don't believe me? And then, and I shared this with you, uh, the last teaching. God says, well, what's that in your hand? Well, it's a staff. Well, throw it down. And he threw it down and became a serpent. I guess you could call that the first example of a serious staph infection. But anyways... It became a serpent, and God said, take it by the tail, it turned back into staff. I have a couple of visitors here, they're over there moaning right now. But I, I'm sure you have a much superior sense of humor than these two over here. But uh, now they're laughing. But um, I want to think for a second here. He, he, he throws this down, it becomes a serpent. God reveals the nature of the staff before it's yielded to God. And now he takes it up, and from that point on, it's called the staff of the Lord, the staff of God. Now, Moses held the staff with his hand, and then God says, I'll take your hand and put it in your bosom. So he puts it inside his robe, and he takes it out. It's white with zarat, and that's the first time we find this word in the Torah. And then God says, okay, put it back in. And when he did and took it out, it was healthy again. And then God tells him, says, now, if they don't believe these two signs, take some water, pour it out on the ground, and when you pour it out, it will turn into blood. Do you ever wonder about these three signs? There are a couple applications here I want us to look at. First of all, is 
God is working from the revealing, starting with the exterior and moving to the interior. Um, God works from the inside out, but his revelation to Moses is from the outside in. Moses relied on his staff as a shepherd for his protection, for leading, for, for all kinds of things. Without a staff, uh, life can get very dangerous in the wilderness. So this thing, this external thing that Moses relied on, God says, basically surrender it to me. When he did, he thought, oh my goodness, it's got something in it I was not aware of. So now he takes it back up and he realizes the danger of relying on anything but God. Now what do you hold the staff with? Your hand. That's your body. Then God reveals it. Look, it's leprous. So now the very thing that I use to grab the thing I rely on that is something that's deadly. And then the water turned into blood. What is it that, that gives energy to my body? It's the blood, the most internal part of me. I want my blood to stay inside my body because when blood comes out of the body, that's a picture of death. But there's another thing that occurred to me this week I want you to think about. Why was Moses even in the wilderness? Because he had to flee from Egypt. Why did he have to flee from Egypt? Because he murdered an Egyptian. How did he kill the Egyptian? We're told that Moses struck the Egyptian. And I'm going to assume that Moses had something in his hand. Maybe a staff. Maybe the same staff. Because someone in leadership, someone in Moses' position in Egypt, would usually carry a staff that would be his symbol of office. And since that would have been in his hand, that's probably what he struck the Egyptian with. And what did he swing the staff with? His hand. And when he killed that Egyptian, I guarantee there was blood in the sand. It's almost as if these three signs that God is giving Moses is taking Moses back 40 years to the original sin he committed that drove him out of Egypt. And God is telling him, that staff, I want you to take it back up because you're going to use it for me. That hand, yeah, it's leprous. You sinned with that hand. But look, I made it whole again. And the blood, yeah, I know. It's you shed blood. But you know what? I'm going to use water to deliver my people when you take them across the sea. And it's like God is bringing restoration to these things that had to constantly go through Moses' mind every day of his life. Just a thought. There's something else I want you to consider here. The problem here with the person is sin. And it's very interesting how things are worded in this portion. Look at chapter 13, verse 33 for a moment. In verse 33, it says, that this is when a, uh, a person is suspected of having zarat and the, the priest would have him shave. And there's a thing called a nesek, a, a netek. A netek is a, is a form of zarat that appears where there's hair on the scalp or in the beard. It says, then he shall shave himself, but he shall not shave the netek. He leaves that part with the hair growing. And the Kohen shall quarantine the netek. Notice it doesn't say he quarantines the person. He quarantines the problem. And since the person's attached to the problem, the person has to be quarantined with it. It reminds me of something that happened years ago at Beth Takoon. There was a, a, a man I knew from the time he was a child, and um, he'd been through a lot of horrible things in his life. And he had a lot of demonic issues. And over the years, he would call, and we'd get together to try to help, and others had tried to help him with different things, and his life was just a total wreck. But he would call and ask if he could come to Beth Takoon, and okay, you can, you can come visit, and, you know, but you have to behave. We have to kind of monitor him and watch things because I really cared for this guy. Well, things got to such a point that he had disappeared, been in prison for a while, and, and uh, 
And one Shabbat morning, as we were getting ready to start the service, one of the elders says, Grant so-and-so is at the door, wants to come in. And uh, so I went out to the door, and there he was. And um, we had forewarnings of things that he's done before, and he was a bit dangerous, especially around children. So I went out and talked to him, and he was very polite and said, Grant says, I'd really like to come in and be part of the service this morning. And I said, you know what? I would love it if you could come in. I said, but there's something in your life that I hate and that you hate too. And I love you, but this thing you've got in your life is something we cannot allow inside these doors. And as long as that thing is attached to you, I'm sorry, but you can't come in here. And so I made it very clear. I loved him. But this thing he's got had to stay outside. And that's kind of what's being said here. The priest says that he quarantines the netek. He quarantines the affliction. But the person's attached to it. So they, what happens to the affliction happens to them until they're separated from it. You know, and over in, in uh, 2 Kings, it's in chapter 6, I believe, chapter 5. It's a story of Naaman, the leper. And twice in that story, it refers to Naaman and how he could be cured. But that's not what it says in the Hebrew. The, the Jewish slave girl says, oh, if I only could see Elijah the prophet, he could cure him and, uh, of his leprosy. And then later, the king sends Naaman to Elijah. He says, so, with a letter, hoping that Elijah can cure him of his leprosy, but it doesn't say cure him. It says to gather him from his leprosy. Isn't that an interesting way to put things? To gather the person from his leprosy. And that's what it says in the Hebrew. So it's a matter of quarantining the leprosy, but gathering us away from it. That's what God wants to do for us. He wants to gather us from our sin. The sin can't come in. It has to stay out. But, oh, I'd love to gather you away from it. But so many times we hold on to our sin like it was uh, someone falling overboard, gripping a rock, a boulder, thinking it'll help save their lives. If they only let go of the boulder, they can float back to the top. But they embrace this thing that just keeps pulling them down. And so I just encourage you as we approach this season of Passover, that you let go of the things that are pulling you down. You repent of them. It's a matter of letting go of them. You let go of them, they'll let go of you. And you know the the tradition, it's a beautiful, beautiful tradition, is that uh, the night before Passover, the house has been cleansed of, uh, of all the leaven, and the night before, the parents will go and take a slice of bread and cut up in little cubes and hide it around the house. And then at night, the children will take a candle or flashlight, safer, and they'll take a, a feather and a wooden spoon and then a bag. And they'll go around with a light and look for any leaven in the house. It's really a lot of fun. But when they find a piece of leaven, they'll hold the wooden spoon, take the feather, and they'll brush the piece of bread into the spoon. They won't touch it, but then they dump it in the paper bag. And then they go around until they found all these pieces. And then in the morning, there's a little prayer, and there's a ritual, and you burn the bag of leaven, putting it away. And there's a powerful lesson taught by this, and that is once you have the light to see the sin in your life, and you have the willpower to get rid of it, that's all you need. All it takes then is a feather, and it's gone. But people lack the light to see the problem, or they lack the willpower to deal with it. They just don't want to face it and take care of it. But anyways, well, let's get on with this. What are we to make of all these details in these two Torah portions, with all this ooze and funny-looking hairs and changes of color and skin? And, and uh, what do we make of this? Well, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for our doctrine, our teaching. It's profitable for our reproof, pointing out what's wrong in our lives. It's profitable for our correction 
and for our instruction in righteousness. And when Paul wrote that, it had to apply to these portions here about zarat, with all its oozy, pussy, gross details. And if these chapters seem a little repulsive and icky, it's because that's how God wants us to feel about sin in our lives. But too often we're willing to embrace sin, but be repulsed by the things that symbolize it, because those are obviously gross. Well, if only we could see the same grossness in our sins and be just as repulsed by them. So let's take the major examples, the major um, categories of Zerat. And I call these spiritual insights into Zerat. The first one you find in chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. And there it discusses if a man has an inflammation. Inflammation. And the word for uh, inflammation there is the word shachin. And an inflammation is not zarat, but it can become zarat. An inflammation, a shekin. And uh, shekin is closely related to the word shekinah, something that indwells. And we know the shekinah of God is something that shines. And sometimes there can be a sin that kind of shines in our life. It's something we're kind of proud of, but it's still sin. But we think that because it brings us positive attention, It may bring us an income, it may bring us praise, and it might be a source of pride and boastfulness. We think, well, this is a good thing, but not necessarily. There could be things in our lives that look positive, but they're not. What are the inflammations? What are the the things in your life that can become, and inflammation is a good term for this, because it's something that flames up, not in actual flames, but it's something that can cause a a distress too. It's a very broad term. Inflammation is not sin. There are things in our lives that can cause us to get inflamed, like somebody says something or does something, or something happens in the political world that makes us angry. Now, anger is not sin, but boy, it sure can become sin. We need to be careful of anything that inflames us, whether it's something that we think is positive or something that is negative, because it can become a source of zarat. It has the potential of becoming something we don't want it to become. It can become something deadly and divisive. In verse 23, it says, "Is the scarring of the inflammation. The Kohen shall declare him clean. But as you read through the passage, you'll find that this scarring of the inflammation, this scarring from a past wound, can become something that is sinful. You know, there, we've all been wounded. We all have scars. Emotional scars from things that have happened to us, or said to us, um, And we think we've gotten over it. And when you least expect it, something can come along and inflame that scar tissue again in our souls. And if we don't deal with it right away, we'll find ourselves right back, as if no time has passed at all, and we're right back in the middle of that conflict in our minds, reliving it, getting angry again, and allowing it to poison our relationships and our our connection with God And we just have to be aware that these old scars from old injuries are a potential source of zarat. So just be cautious. That scar tissue is there for a reason. It's to remind you, don't go back there. It's been healed. Don't open it back up again. Let it stay healed and covered. When you go on to verses 24 to 28, it talks about old burns. Old burns are potential site of zarat. If a person will have a burn from fire on his skin and the healed skin of the burn, and it goes on and says if it's one thing, it's it's a rot. If it's another thing, it's pure. We've all been burned before. And we have scar tissue from those burns, from the things people have done to us in the past. 
you know, I, I take number one and two because they're very similar. You have inflammations and you have the burns. And I, you can kind of think of them this way. Inflammations are the things we've kind of done to ourselves because of our own goofiness. But the burns are usually things that people have done to us. And we need to learn to let go of the things we've done to ourselves, just the dumb, dumb, dumb decisions we've made in the past. And quit beating ourselves up for them. To quit taking the failures of the past and reliving them and thinking I'm just worthless, I'm no good. What does Proverbs say? A righteous man falls seven times and gets back up seven times. It doesn't say a righteous man never falls. We all goof up. But the righteous man gets back on his feet because to stay down is an unrighteous act. So we get back up. We brush ourselves off. We're a little older, a little wiser, a little more scarred, but it's okay. But don't let that scar tissue become something sinful. And then it talks about hidden zarat, and that hidden zarat is still zarat. And if you pick it up in verse 29, it says this, A man or a woman in whom there will be an affliction on the scalp or on the beard. So these are areas covered by hair. The skin that's covered by hair is not very visible. It says, The Cohen shall look at the affliction, and behold, its appearance is deeper than the skin, and within it is a weak golden hair. The Cohen shall declare him contaminated. It is a netek, a zerat of the head or the beard. So a netek is a special kind of zerat. It's found in the hair or in the beard. Now, as you read on through, what we're finding here, first of all, is that hidden zarat is still zarat. You may think you've got it covered up and nobody can see. But our high priest sees, and that's for sure. But here's the second part. It's the most embarrassing kind of zarat to deal with. Because in verse 33, it says, He shall shave himself, but he shall not shave the netek. Imagine this. Man, you know, has a full beard. That's a real popular today for men to have big beards. But there's some zarat found. A netek is found on his cheek here. So what's he supposed to do? Shave his entire beard except for that. So the hair is growing right out of his side of his face. How weird and embarrassing would that be? How about a woman who has some on her head? So what does she have to do? Shave her head except for that, that piece of hair where the netek is. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. And what was hidden is now fully exposed for everyone to see. Do you see that guy with that hair growing on the You know? And, uh, yeah. But this is what must be done if you want to deal with it. Things that you've kept hidden, you must confess. You must confess. And, uh, you know, it says if, he, if we are faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But confession is something God waits for us to do. Because when you confess, what you're saying is, what God says about my sin, I agree with. And I say about my sin what he says about it. And I condemn what he condemns in my life. So, this takes great humility. But it's something every single one of us in our human condition has to do. Nobody's excused from this. No one's exempt. Something we all have to go through. And we'll have to go through it more than once. Where we simply have to confess it. Now, there's a right way to confess, and there's a wrong way to confess. You know, earlier I mentioned the uh, three major categories of Zerat. They're right there at the beginning of chapter 13. And, um, and the rabbis talk about these three kinds and what they might mean. But uh, there's one of them where the, this kind of Zerat is kind of a, uh, where you glory in your low position. And as I was reading what the rabbis say, I thought of people, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this myself, but it's, it's probably just repressed memory, but I've met people who um, are caught in a sin. Instead of being broken by it and confessing it and humbly repenting of it and putting it away and experiencing the shame and the revulsion of what they've done, 
Oh, they'll confess it. They'll confess it publicly. And it's basically, did everybody see how, how well I confessed my sin? Everybody knows my humility? Did everybody see how I just put it out there in front of the world? And they can even make confession of sin something that they will boast in in, in their own souls. It's, we're, we're weird. Human beings are just really strange. We are very odd creatures because we can be so mixed so we can do the right thing, but we do it according to Satan's tactics in the entirely wrong way. And we need to guard against this. Number five. In chapter 13, verses 38 to 44, it talks about what is generally translated just as eczema. It's just a physical skin ailment. And it talks about baldness. And basically, the Torah tells us eczema is eczema, baldness is baldness. So, Carry on. Just keep calm and carry on. It's no big deal. It's just what it is. It has nothing to do with the Zerat. Now, why even mention this? It's because what we want to do is instead of looking for Zerat in our own lives, we like to look at it, look for it in other people's lives. <gasps> There's some Zerat over there. <gasps> look what's on his skin. <gasps> look at the baldness. And of course, we don't put it that way. We'll say, oh, did you see what that person did? Did you hear what that person said? Do you know where they went? Do you know who they're friends with? And what can happen, we can start calling Zerat things that are not. Because we misread appearances, we misread actions, we misread things that are said. And if we'd only doubt our own infallibility for a minute, we wouldn't be so quick to judge people for things that they're innocent of. So I'm glad that this part is put into chapter 13. That just because there's something that looks unusual going on does not mean that it's sin. Now, in verses 45 to 46, the Torah tells us what a leprous person does. And this is what it says. The leprous person, the person with Zarat, uh, a person with Zerat is called a metzora, from the word Zerat. So the metzora, who has the disease, shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Tame, Tame, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, when you read this, much of what's described here, not all, but much of it, describes someone who's in mourning. Because when you lose a loved one, you tear your clothes. I remember the last trip to Israel. I was sitting next to a, a Jewish man, a Jewish scholar. We had a great conversation. And I noticed in his jacket, it had been cut. His lapel had been cut. And uh, so I knew that he was in mourning, and as the conversation went on, he, he shared about how his mother had died. He lived in New York City, and his mother died, so they'd flown the body to Jerusalem, and she was buried there in Israel. And he told me about his mother, who was a concentration camp survivor. It was amazing to hear about it. But he was in mourning. He had his clothes torn. And the people generally, they won't eat. They let their hair grow loose. They just kind of look unkempt. And that is the proper behavior for a metzora, because he should be in mourning. Mourning not over the fact that he's separate from the community, but mourning over the fact that he had sin in his life. And that sin is his problem. Speaking of the metzora, Robin and I were talking yesterday, and she had been reading... Um, a commentary on this section, and it referred to uh, a portion from the Talmud, a portion I've shared before here, which talks about Messiah as being a metzora. It's a fascinating passage, and it's in Tractate Sanhedrin. When people ask me about the Talmud and if they should read it or not, I, I don't necessarily encourage them to. I encourage them to study the scriptures. But if they really are curious and they really want to uh, educate themselves, I say, well, if you're going to read it, 
read Tractate Sanhedrin because so much of it, especially the last half, the last third, is about the Messiah and the Jewish understanding of who the Messiah is, about his coming, and explains so much about what we see about Yeshua in the Gospels. And I've quoted it many times. But this one story I find fascinating. This is from Sanhedrin, page 98a. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said to Elijah, when will the Messiah come? Now, first of all, Elijah makes appearances all through Jewish literature. When you see Elijah, just think Holy Spirit. Because Elijah, remember, he never died. He went up into the heavens on a fiery chariot. And uh, everything about Elijah is very mysterious, very mystical. In fact, this is why at our Passover seders, there's a point near the end where a child opens the door to see if Elijah's there. And at a Messianic Seder, it's like inviting the Holy Spirit to come in and allowing our light to go out into the world at the same time. Anyways, so this fanciful story, this Rabbi Yahashua, which is Joshua, Yeshua, son of Levi, said to Elijah, when will the Messiah come? Elijah said to him, go ask him. Rabbi Yahashua ben Levi asked, well, where is he? Where is he sitting? Where can I find him? Elijah said to him, at the entrance of the city of Rome. We'll come back to that for a moment. Why would Messiah be at the, be at the entrance of the city of Rome? Rabbi Yahashua ben Levi asked him, and how will I recognize him? What's his identifying sign so that I can recognize him? Elijah answered, he sits among the poor who suffer from illnesses, from Zarat, and all of them untie their bandages and tie them all at once. But the Messiah unties one bandage at a time and then ties it back. He says, perhaps I will be needed to serve to bring about the redemption. Therefore, I will never tie more than one bandage so that I will not be delayed. So we see the Messiah in this, again, a fanciful story, sitting outside the gate of Rome with the lepers, and he unties one bandage at a time, so if he's called into action, he can go immediately. So, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi went to the Messiah. He finds him. He said to the Messiah, Greetings to you, my rabbi and my teacher. The Messiah said to him, Greetings to you, Bar-Levi. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said to him, When will the master come? When are you going to come? The Messiah said to him, Today. Sometime later, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi came to Elijah. Elijah said to him, What did the Messiah say to you? He said to Elijah that the Messiah lied to me. As he said to me, I'm coming today, and he did not come. Elijah said to him that this is what he said to you. He said that he will come today if you will listen to his voice. Today, if you will listen to his voice, is a quote from Psalm 95, verse 7. Psalm 95, verse 7. Um, I'll read 7 and 8. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. And then in Hebrews, Hebrews quotes this passage. Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quote, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Chapter 3 of Hebrews is like a running commentary on Psalm 97, Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, about this phrase, today, if you'll hear my voice. Today, if you hear my voice. And so what, John, what Elijah is telling Rabbi Yehoshua is that the Messiah will come into your heart right now if you'll hear his voice. You'll call out to him, hear his voice. 
He'll come right now. And if Israel will call out to him and hear his voice, he'll come to them. So that is what is mentioned by the word today. That's what it's meant today. I'll come today, right now. But why in the world would the Talmud portray the Messiah sitting among lepers outside the gates of Rome? Untying bandages. bandages. He's a leper outside of Rome. It's almost as if this passage is prophetic because what city in the world, in the mind of the world, is closely allied with Christ, with Christianity, with Jesus. That would be the Vatican in Rome, the seat of the, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Jewish mind, Jesus, he's the God of the, the Christians. He's the God of the Christians. But even in Rome, how is he treated? They make statues of him. They make paintings of him. They make statues of gold. And, and they make a big show of, of worshiping and loving Jesus. But the real Jesus, the real Yeshua of the scriptures, is outside the gates. He's with the poor. He's with the lepers. He's unrecognized by Rome. And that's where we find him. So, it's an amazing portrait of Messiah who's taken the leprosy of the people upon himself. He's ready to go into action the moment, today, that someone calls out to him. Someone repents. But you're not going to find him inside the city of Rome. You're not going to find him necessarily inside a denomination or religion. He's an individual. He is the Messiah, and he's available today but he may not be where you're looking. And uh, I just find this story amazing, especially since the main character himself is named Yahshua, Yeshua. Fascinating story. I keep saying that, don't I? Well, let's... um, Questions. Yes, we have some visitors. Question. Mostly a comment. I can't help but sit here and think about how this is such a perfect, perfect example of how we can read words that are ancient mm. and think that they're unsensible yeah. or that they are not relevant. Right. But it isn't because they don't make sense and it isn't because they are not deeply relevant. It's because we don't have the understanding. Yes, that's right. And it's another experience sitting here as you yeah. teach this, this passage and this text. We come to the eternal word we have to change and come to what it yes. says instead of being who we are and trying to take and tear a piece off and apply it because it's comfortable yeah. or something we're familiar with. Yeah. And I, I, it just blows my mind. Yes. No wonder this is central in the Torah. Absolutely. I don't know if you could hear everything that Robin was sharing, but um, basically, and help me, um, She's talk, is talking about how this passage of scripture is so ignored because it doesn't seem to make sense. And yet it's very central to the Torah. And it just shows how we lack understanding. And that's why we look at it and think, well, what does this have to do with anything? But uh, we shouldn't expect God's word to be written like some man wrote it. God wrote it. If it doesn't make sense, it's because we're not sensing what it says. And we have to live with it. We have to live with it. We have to chew on it. And we have to realize it's profitable to me. God, what are you saying through it? God speaks through pictures. And you can look at all of this about leprosy, about zarat, even though it actually happened. We can look at it almost as a parable about our own lives. And uh, the moment we begin to open it up that way, it starts to reveal itself to us. But we have to live with it. We have to chew on it. We have to go slowly through it. We have to meditate on God's Word. 
Did we talk about meditate last week? I don't think we talked about meditate last week. Did we? Here's the Hebrew word for meditate. It's the word Hagah. It's hey, gimel, hey. It's a palindrome. It's spelled the same way, forward and backwards. Now the letter hey, this letter that it begins and ends with, is just, it's breath. It's a picture of the spirit. And the gimel in the middle is a picture of a man walking to the left. So he's walking this direction, the same direction as the as Hebrew reads. So it's kind of a picture of my spirit, God's spirit, and by meditating, the two come together. And I'm moving towards him, but you can spell the word backwards. He's moving toward me. I draw near to him. He draws close to me. And that's what meditation does. The only parts of the Bible I know that promise a blessing for reading them is basically the book of Daniel and Revelation. The rest of the Bible doesn't promise any blessing for reading it. The blessing is promised to those who meditate on it. And that's what we fail to do to meditate and to chew and to meditate and to think and to be quiet, to be still, and just let it soak into our, our souls. And that's what Haggah is. And I speak to God, he speaks back. Hey, Gimel, hey. Hey, Gimel, hey. And it's like his spirit and my spirit begin to connect. It's a, it's a, that's what meditation is. It's not Easter meditation where you empty your mind. Biblical meditation is where you fill your mind with God's word and you let it dwell within you. That's what we have to do with this. As unpleasant as it may appear on the surface, these portions are so pertinent to our own souls, our own condition. So, Discussion questions. I'm going to warn you right now, don't try to do all these discussion questions in your group. Because these are big questions, and if you get through one or two, you're doing great. So, some of these we did not even discuss in the teaching. Like chapter 12, we didn't even mention chapter 12, which is about the woman who gives birth. And if she gives birth to a son, she is impure for a seven-day period, followed by 33 days. A girl, it's, uh, it's double that. And people ask, well, why is it twice as long for a girl? That's the wrong question. The question is, why is it half as long for a boy? So read Leviticus 12, 1 through 5. Why do you think the circumcision of a son reduces a mother's time of impurity by half? The key is right there. The circumcision of the son is mentioned in the passage. That's the key as to why her time of impurity is cut in half. There's something very spiritual going on there. Read Mark 13, 1 to 2. What is the significance of these words of Yeshua in light of Leviticus 14, 33 to 45. This passage here is about the zarat in a house and how the stones have to be scraped and removed and eventually the whole house may have to be deconstructed. In Mark 13, Yeshua and his disciples are walking and looking down at the temple. And Yeshua says, I tell you, that not one stone will be left on another. And I think when Yeshua said that, he was referencing this. Because a house that gets zarat, and it doesn't heal back from it, even after repairs are made, has to be completely disassembled. So, discuss that. There are a lot of insights you'll come up with. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, identifies six kinds of people who are to be removed from a redeemed community. How does this passage connect to Leviticus 14, 33 to 45? So you can read there and uh, compare these two passages, because there are times, and the scriptures are very clear, about when a person needs to be removed from a community. And then when they repent and they're pure again, you bring them back in and you celebrate their return. And discuss 2 Corinthians 6, 17 through 17, 1. What applications can you make to your own life? A very rich passage of scripture in light of our topic this morning. So, with that, 
Are there any more questions or comments? All right, well then, let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this amazing, amazing passage of Scripture that's right at the very heart of your Torah. Lord, I pray we would never again look at this and just skip over it or read through it quickly because it's unpleasant. And I pray, Father, we would never again skip over the things in our own souls, the things that we just overlook, think that's no big deal. That's not our call. That's the call of our high priest. So, Father, I pray we would take to heart what you say about our condition. There may be things in our lives we think are, are, are a mess. You'll say, no, it's just scar tissue. And there may be other things that we think are just fine. You'll say, nope, that needs to be quarantined. That has to be done away with. So, Lord, grant us discernment. And Lord, help us to be hard on ourselves, but easy on others. And we'll give you the praise and glory for what you accomplish. In Yeshua's name, amen.